Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reismandel. Hi, everyone. I'm Jennifer Waits. And I'm Eric Klein. And today we're going to talk about the Fairness Doctrine because it's back on the lips of many commentators, on the tips of their pens in their, uh, you know, coming out uh, in the press. And so we've invited our friend, Professor Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota, once again, to help us, uh, one, uh, remind everyone what this is and what it isn't, (laughs) because that's often at the root of a lot of this. And, you know, talk a little bit about why we're talking about it again and help us kind of dig into that history a little bit um, to, to really build out that story, to, right, to help, help folks really understand this, this uh, cudgel that, that, that seems to be uh, uh, lashed around the, quite a bit. The cudgel you're referencing, Paul, is one of the oldest pieces of media regulation in the country, post, you know, after, after the First Amendment. Then well, comes sort of putting it sort of. Then comes the fairness doctrine. <laughs> Welcome, Chris. Thanks for being with us. It's always great to be here, and I'm I'm glad that we've oversimplified the fairness doctrine before we even get started today. You have so, to you have to you have to you have to keep it simple in the first minute, and then you can complicate it during the next. Okay, episode. sure. Here is a, here's a simple version of the fairness doctrine. The myths about the Fairness Doctrine are equivalent to the myths about shouting fire in a crowded theater, uh, both of which are just highly misunderstood First Amendment standards and practices as it goes. The Fairness Doctrine is back, though. Um, I haven't gone more than a couple days in a row for several weeks now without at least one person, a reporter, somebody online, like formally reaching out to ask me about the fairness doctrine. It's actually become an insanely common topic for me to be talking about. And there's two reasons for that. And the reason it's back is number one, um, there's a lot of effort in our society, good and bad, to try to do something to balance media in some way. The most notable which is to do something about web platforms that get rid of certain speakers for certain reasons. Um, There's a lot of effort in Congress. There's a lot of effort at the state level. Both Texas and Florida have passed rules that are functionally online fairness doctrines in many ways. Um, So there's a lot of interest in that. But there's also a lot of interest in trying to do something about media media organizations that people disagree with, that they believe that if the fairness doctrine were to come back, it would balance out things like Fox News. And of course, even if the fairness doctrine were still around, and it's been gone for a very, very long time, um, none of that is true, right? The fairness doctrine didn't do a lot of the things that people assume it did. And if I had a dollar for everyone who's yelled at me in social media about how I don't know about what the fairness doctrine did, I'd well, I'd have a lot of dollars. Let's put it that way. Can you can you rewind then, Chris, and tell us what is the fairness doctrine? Wait, but can I can I make into... it can I make it worse? Can I say what the <laughs> sure, fairness doctrine myth is? Because that I understand. Oh yeah, and that's yeah, and that's ahead. what most people think it is. Probably it's that if if Fox News has a Republican on to talk about why uh why spending th- four trillion dollars on on Biden's agenda is a waste. They need to have Bernie Sanders on to say why spending four trillion dollars on Americans is, uh, you know, the only way to save the country for the future. They have to balance it 
They're they're required to balance every topic. Well, the most common myth of the fairness doctrine is actually the idea of equal time. The original fairness doctrine didn't have anything to do with equal time. In fact, equal time is an entirely separate uh, provision in FCC code. Actually, equal time is still on the books, but it only applies to political advertising. Um, it is actually from the Communications Act of 1934, so it fits into that window, Eric said, between the First Amendment and when the Fairness Doctrine was actually created. It's actually from 1934, but large portions of the equal time rule still apply, but they only apply to broadcasters, so over-the-air broadcast radio, over-the-air broadcast television, Not the and only, only in the context of political advertising run in a 40 or 60, 45 or 60-day window before an election. And That's is that- it. So for broadcasters, does that not include cable then? No. Cable is not bound by the same rules. Now, this goes to something that we've talked about on this show when I've been on in the past, is that radio and television are functionally different under the law because they use spectrum to broadcast from a position point through a licensed broadcaster. That means that their First Amendment protection is substantially curtailed, not because the government tends to regulate the things that they say or have to say, but because they took a license from the government in the first place. And that's a fundamentally unique situation when it comes to speech in U.S. history. Now, even the equal time rule has been gutted. Uh, The very famous case of Howard Stern uh, achieved uh, or earned himself an equal time complaint and the FCC then applied the what is known as the bona fide news exception rule, that those equal time provisions don't apply if uh, a political candidate appears in the context of a news or informational style programming. So, in so, fact, so just to draw that out, what that means, sure. Chris, right, is that is that if a candidate appears on the tonight show if donald trump is on the tonight and, show and, and is it's and that's entertainment or saturday night live that's considered different than if than if uh, the candidate appears on the nbc nightly news or even a local news program in fact uh one of the very rare um that's actually a great example one of the very rare times where equal time has actually applied to anything besides political advertising in the last well in my lifetime actually is that uh when Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, and Donald Trump each appeared on uh, Saturday Night Live, there were already primary races going on. So that puts those situations inside of the political window. And how they handled the equal time complaints from the other candidates that were in the races, both on the Republican side, although far less on the Democratic side, just because it was the basically those two, Bernie and Hillary, uh, is they just gave them some free ads. Mm-hmm. Right. That was just how they handled it. And only for that Saturday night. But that's that's equal time. The fairness doctrine is something entirely different, even though it, I can show you unbelievable amounts of literature that is written about the fairness doctrine saying equal time. Fairness doctrine never required equal time. But to understand the fairness doctrine, you really need to understand where it came from. Fairness doctrine is the end game on a series of events that starts in the 1930s. In 1939, the FCC made a very obscure ruling called the Mayflower Decision. The Mayflower Decision became known as the Mayflower Doctrine. 
But like many of the FCC's doctrines, it actually only applied to one set of facts in one case. What happened in that case was is there were two people competing for one broadcast license in the city of Boston. One person in Boston actually, through sort of a weird series of events, controlled both of the AM radio stations that were on the air in Boston in 1938. And a competing company made a bid for one of the two licenses, and they were known as Yankee. And what they did was they said, the guy who owns these two stations is using them to editorialize on behalf of candidates that he likes. Specifically, their beef was about the mayoral race and one state assembly race at the time. The FCC drug its feet on this comparative license hearing for a long time. And remember, this is back when stations had to renew their license basically every year. And eventually they give the license back to the person who had it. But they come out with the Mayflower Doctrine. And they say that broadcast stations can carry news, but they can't editorialize. They can't carry opinion discussions. And of course, the broadcasters went berserk at the at the idea that this is what had happened. Now, there's a lot of discussion historically about whether or not the FCC meant what they said in the Mayflower decision, or whether people read a little bit more into what was being said in the Mayflower decision than what the FCC meant to say. Regardless of which, broadcasters looked at the Mayflower decision at the end of 1939, and they said, we're not allowed to editorialize. And... They, they went crazy. And Justin Miller, who was head of the NAB at the time, and James Lawrence Fly, who was head of the FCC at the time, two very dynamic figures who were sort of in conflict, they're sort of going to war with each other. But then World War II happens, and the issue gets punted down the road a little bit. But during the war, the broadcasters go to the FCC and they say, look, if we can't editorialize, we need to know what it takes to serve the public interests in these areas. And right after the war, the FCC comes out with something called the Blue Book. It's a federal document that came in a blue-covered folder. And there's one at the Wisconsin Memorial Society Archives. One of the original blue books is still there. Uh, Victor Picard wrote extensively about the blue book and some of his scholarship. But the, the long story short was, is that the blue book was sort of a set of guidelines given from the FCC to broadcasters to answer the questions not only about what had happened in the Mayflower case, but also to say what it would take to actually do that really basic thing that your license required to serve the public interest. But one of the things that the FCC said in the blue book is that you should limit the amount of advertising you carry in an hour. Now, there were other things that the broadcasters objected to. No, it, that's what they really objected to. They were really, cons- the broadcasters really didn't like this idea at all. And the limits on the advertising were fairly narrow. I don't remember exactly what they were offhand, but they were, it, it was a, Dramatic reduction in the amount of advertising they're allowed to care. So the war that had been brewing between the broadcasters and the FCC since the Mayflower Doctrine gets carried into the Blue Book. They broadcasters immediately revolt against these new standards in the Blue Book. They go back to the FCC and they say, try again. And then in 1949, the FCC says, okay, we're going to tell you what it takes 
to meet this obligation to serve the public interest. And that's where they come up with the fairness doctrine. Um, do, and in 1949, they released the first version of the fairness doctrine. Now, I, I don't want to go too far off the rails here, but this is what the fairness doctrine required of a licensee. That a licensee cover issues of public interest to a local audience, and that when those issues were controversial, that the opportunity be provided for more than one viewpoint on that. Now, that didn't mean Democrat and Republican, right and left, to green spaghetti monster or purple spaghetti monster. What it meant was is that if there was an issue in which there was a debate, that the station should try to foster some discussion of that. The station retained the right to say who got to speak for how long and most importantly, when. Right? It wasn't some sort of equal time provision and it only applied in issues that there was some debate on. What the Fairness Doctrine was designed to do was give the broadcasters an, uh, an obligation to cover issues in their local community. That's what its intent was, with the idea that if it's an ongoing debate, to allow more than one point of view. But that's all the Fairness Doctrine ever required of broadcasters, was cover issues of local concern, potentially allow for more than one viewpoint on that. That's it. You know, when I was uh, a child growing up, um, I'm now going to date myself a little bit, but in the 70s and 80s, I recall that local television affiliates that had local news often set aside, you know, a two-minute a two-minute window, you know, before or after the news um, to air an editorial, right? And so sometimes the editorial was presented by the general manager of the station or, you know, an employee there. And then it always it would say, you know, and we welcome replies from members of the public. And sometimes you would then therefore see, you know, maybe somebody who is a, a somewhat more prominent uh, citizen, somebody, you know, a business person, a uh, public figure. But other times, not always, sometimes it was a more, you know, sort of average everyday citizen given yeah, an opportunity I, to respond to, to that. And, and, and I as, I, re- as, as that I interpret, that's I ha- sort of the, the fairness doctrine. I have to mention yeah. that this has been passed down culturally like the one place where young people might still see remnants of this moment where where random citizens got a chance to say their piece at the news desk um that's that's where the first um weekend update guest spots Roseanne Rosanna Dana was satirizing that character and now any comedian who gets to sit down at the desk of weekend update is sort of Echoing that from the past on Saturday Night, on Saturday Night Live, even yeah. if perhaps those comedians now have never actually no. witnessed no. The, the original uh, impetus for that for that skit, it was already hokey in the mid seventies. Clearly, the 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 point that you refer to was still considered an important part of public service. It was part and parcel of what the Fairness Doctrine did, but it 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 was entirely separate. Stations had. As licensees, they had the sort of authority to determine who got to speak and on what issues. Now, what happens to the Fairness Doctrine after 1949 is a more complicated story. The Fairness Doctrine is on the books, and the FCC enforces it in many of the ways that the FCC tends to enforce things, which is basically not to enforce them. 
Um, again, the Fairness Doctrine, like the Mayflower Doctrine before, it was sort of supposed to be sort of a guideline principle rather than an enforceable regulation. Right, and 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 the FCC often is more complaint driven or driven by times of which, you know, like a license renewal, when they may review the record on a station's adherence to to standards, et cetera, but that there's not uh, FCC uh, staff watching every minute of television, logging down, you know, moments in which uh, the pro- all the viewpoints or the, the enough viewpoints were covered, right? And that's exactly what how it worked. In the mid-1950s, though, Congress was sort of asked to say whether or not the FCC had the authority to actually enforce the doctrine. And there's a lot of debate about what happens in 1954 on the Fairness Doctrine. The the short version, the the sort of too-long-don't-read version of this discussion is, is that Congress sort of codified the Fairness Doctrine as law. But the next really big moment for the Fairness Doctrine happens in 1967. The Fairness Doctrine is still the Fairness Doctrine, but it is expanded to include two additional rules. And this is where most people kind of lose what the Fairness Doctrine was about. In 1967, two rules were added to the Fairness Doctrine. The first was the political editorial rule. Political editorial rule worked very much like Uh, equal time did under Section 315, in that if a candidate for office was given a chance to editorialize on a subject, the opposing candidate in that race had to be notified that that was going to happen, and if they wanted to, they had to be provided a copy of that. It did not require that they were given equal time for a response, but if they wanted time to respond, they may have been given a portion of time to do that. Not an equivalent time, not equal time, not same time, just an opportunity there. Very few people actually ever used the political editorial rule uh, in effect. The one that gets more attention, though, is the other corollary rule added to the Fairness Doctrine in 1967, and that is the personal attack rule. Personal attack rule said if if you made a criticism about someone's name, likeness, or character, you had to provide them a copy of that, a notification that that had occurred, as well as provide an opportunity for a response. Of course, these are wholly compelled speech issues. Now the FCC isn't just saying, you know, you have an obligation to cover public issues. They're giving specific situations where you actually have to provide some mechanism to foster this debate. What ends up happening is that a Christian radio station, a very conservative Christian radio station, criticizes an author um, and on his show. And the author demands an opportunity to respond under the personal attack rule. The station agrees to give him the opportunity to respond, but they want $5.00. For, for the right to do that. Now, there's a lot of debate about where the $5 comes in or whatever, but the author in this case, he, he chooses not to pay the $5 and complains to the FCC. And the broadcasters get the case that they have wanted since 1949 to challenge both the Fairness Doctrine, but also these rules that were passed in 1967. That case goes to the U.S. Supreme Court under the name that is associated with the Fairness Doctrine, 
Red Lion Broadcaster versus FCC. In that case, the issue is, for the Supreme Court, whether or not the FCC has the authority to compel stations to allow this access. The broadcasters saw this case as sort of a slam dunk that the FCC didn't have this authority. But the decision is 8-0 to zero for the FCC and the Fairness Doctrine. And what happens is, is that the Red Lion decision, like Shouting Fire in a Theater and the Schenck decision that that comes from, and of course in the Schenck decision it's falsely shouting fire in a theater. We always forget the falsely part in that equation. What happens with Red Lion and the decision of Red Lion is that the Supreme Court says, well, broadcasters are in this kind of unique situation, right? That they, they have a license to speak to the exception of others. And what really matters is not whether or not the broadcaster gets to speak, but what the listener gets to hear. And the FCC sort of turns First Amendment doctrine on its head a little bit in Red Lion, saying what really matters is not whether or not a broadcaster gets to speak or whether or not a broadcaster is forced to do something it doesn't want to do. It matters what content the listeners have. They call it the rights of the listener. And again, this is in 1969. 69. Big year for First Amendment cases. Brandenburg versus Ohio is that year. That's the incitement case. Tinker v. Des Moines is the student media case, or student speech case, right? Also Red Lion that year. Big year for, for First Amendment decisions. But the court, court is really focused on what broadcasting is supposed to do. Broadcasting is supposed to carry a message out to the listeners and the viewers. And they say, that's... That's why this is okay. Spectrum scarcity makes the government's ability to make people say things that they wouldn't otherwise say okay. By spectrum scarcity, we mean not electromagnetic. Not everybody can have a radio license. That there's only so many licenses for radio television in any market, and when it's full, it's full. It's not the same as that anyone could buy uh, a photocopier and print their own newsletter. It's an American media landscape prior to cable television and prior to exactly. Yeah, something probably hard for people today to understand that we're talking about a time when you're talking about broadcast only, meaning AM, FM, and over-the-air television. Right. And the court says this so specifically that four years later in 1973, they have almost an identical case come up where someone wants a right of reply. But in this case, it's in a Florida newspaper. And the Supreme Court says, no, it's a newspaper, right? The, the same rules don't apply. Get your own now, the precedent from Red Lion should have directly influenced that case. Tornillo is the name of that case. But because the court sees broadcasting and newspapers as so fundamentally different at the time, it upholds it. It does say one really important thing in Red Lion that I think doesn't get spoken about enough anymore. It says this is true right now in 1969. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be true down the road. Huh. And if this comes back up, we might need to revisit this. Now, the FCC and the Supreme Court have never revisited this. Uh, The Supreme Court, as it stands, Red Lion is still good law. The Fairness Doctrine, however, is not. Is it it crazy to ask why they knew that the media landscape would change so much? Is it because they had seen television come forward so quickly as a primary medium that they knew something else in the future was coming? Or is that just... There were already perfunctionatory citizen access television station and cable uh, providers by 1969. I mean, the earliest cable systems from the mid-50s. 
So, I mean, they, they knew it was changing, but I think their point was is that broadcasting is this really kind of unique situation, right? That we let them regulate indecency. We, you know, it's... And the focus, of course, is not on whether or not the broadcasters have the right to be protected from the government. The, the focus is on making sure that citizens have access to information, as wide a possible information, given the structure of the broadcasting industry. So Red Lion upholds the broadcasting, the FCC's implementation of the Fairness Doctrine and the Political, Editorial, and Personal Attack Rules. And it will be the 1980s when things get really interesting for the Fairness Doctrine. Yeah, so we are talking about the Fairness Doctrine here on Radio Survivor. We're talking with Professor Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota. I'm Paul Reese-Mandel. Of course, also joining me is Jennifer Waits and Eric Klein. And, and Chris, you know, I wanted to back up a little bit. Right. Because so, the, you know, the rule that, that we're kind of looking at uh, that was added to the Fairness Doctrine in 1967. Right. This personal attack rule, which is which is, I think, what a lot of people you know have in have in their mind to some extent, you know, that was added in 1967. Like, do you have a sense like why? Why was this rule added? What is it about the political landscape that caught? Because it, it was added by the FCC, correct? This was not a this was not a congressional action. This was a regulatory action. Right. So, what was going on there? It, this would have been still the Johnson administration, correct? And so, with a Democratic administration, a Democratic FCC, at a, you know, at a fairly tumultuous time in in our nation's history, why why is this rule added then? Well, part of the reason is is that the broadcasters wanted to understand when they had to let somebody else talk, mm. right? The the political editorial and personal attack rules, the reason that they're not separate rules and the reason that they're always associated with the Fairness Doctrine is they're really just qualifications of the Fairness Doctrine. Now, part of the story, of course, is what happens um, after Newton Minow gives his vast wasteland speech, right, broadcasters start to stand up and say, you know what, we're kind of afraid of these regulators. And they start asking the regulators to say what it is that they actually want. And it's basically the same question that broadcasters were asking of the FCC 30 years before that, at the time of the Blue Book and the Mayflower decision. They're like, okay, well, you, if you want us to do these things, you can't tell us this, you know, sort of, without some structure. We need structure. And the real intent of the political, editorial, and personal attack rules was to provide that structure to the Fairness Doctrine's application. Got it. You know, it's interesting to me. You know, it's a little bit of like, be careful what you ask for, (laughs) right? Uh, You know, that that I think has been this push-pull. I mean, certainly between broadcasters and the Federal Communications Commission for a very long time. And I don't want to take us too far off the path, but it, but it, I can't help but think of indecency regulation, right? Which, which you know, many people are familiar with. It's the fact that uh, in all intents and purposes, indecent programming shouldn't be aired between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. on broadcast radio and television. The FCC is the body who that regulates uh, that speech uh, on radio or television and for the longest time, and, and by the longest time, I say at least since 1978, uh, the FCC has never given a, a specific doctrine of what is or is not permissible. And it's been this sort of dance we've watched back and forth between broadcasters 
and the commission because of the fact that it's, you know, as much as it's often thought of as the seven dirty words, which that's was only invented because, by a comedian, yeah. which is only because of, of the George Carlin skit, which prompted ultimately a Supreme Court to review. To this day, I won't say the P words into this microphone, even right. though they're probably yeah. okay. But yeah, it's same not the thing. Yeah, but and, it's not the fact that those seven words are actually in any rule written down anywhere that you definitively can't say them during during normal uh, you know daytime hours. And at, well, at college radio, have, should, uh, at college, go ahead. Oh, sorry, at college radio, at college radio conferences that I go to, where you get to chat and ask questions of lawyers, that's some of the most lively, um, and. Uh, some of those are the questions that get asked the most is student broadcasters and advisors asking what can we can and can't we say as far as indecency and obscenity on the air it's so confusing to people it's not actually that confusing the fcc does not have active rules other than the egregious situation standard it's actually not true that the fcc didn't have standards for indecency they've just never been consistent they've changed several times and they're not really um, published uh actually that's not true either they it's were not. published uh, in 1987, 2001, <laughs> uh, 2006, and then again in 2013. <laughs> different show. Fairness. Yeah, yeah show. I guess. <laughs> right, right, well, yeah, no, that's fine. And, and I, I think, you know, I, I guess, though, the, that, you know, being published, I think, though, the sense from broadcasters has always been, certainly non-commercial broadcasters, I can speak more to than commercial broadcasters, has been all of that guidance was all still very vague all still, you know, not really answering that question. Of, a non-regulatory can, FCC say it isn't so. Yeah, can't say this word, can't, you know, can't describe this activity beyond a certain point. You know, it's all still very vague. And, and it's it's often, especially when you talk with non-commercial broadcasters, it's very much reading the tea leaves or working off of cases of fines where the circumstance is 25, 30 years old. So anyway, I just bring that up because I think it's interesting that that this case well, of the it, of the fairness doctrine, uh, you know, having been elaborated, you know, with these additional rules, you know, comes from the the broadcasters themselves sort of asking for clarity well, here in 1967. I think it's it might be worth mentioning that there are rare occasions that we know that radio stations very rare, but rare occasions where radio stations were punished for Right, indecency, and, and and it stings, and people remember it. Yes, but has there ever been a fairness doctrine stick used in the last one hundred years? Well, that's what Red Lion was. I mean, okay, that's yeah. the Red. I mean, that was the decision. Is that Red Lion right. said that? So the when I said fairness doctrine, there, unfortunately, I was I meant the the myth of the fairness doctrine, the the myth that everyone that there should be two sides to every political controversy on the airwaves and uh, and the fairness doctrine is what governs that well of course the the real myth of the fairness doctrine is that kind of can come back um <laughs> right in, starting in the 1980s uh under the fowler fcc the fcc started to roll back all kinds of content regulation including the fairness doctrine the key moment of course was in 1985 when the fcc released its report uh funded almost entirely by the NEB, that the National said, Association of Broadcasters, that said that uh, the Fairness Doctrine was actually impeding the discussion of public issues because stations were too afraid of the stick, to use Eric's word, and they didn't want to cover controversial public issues because they were afraid they would do that. And Fowler's FCC argued if we just got rid of this rule, there would be this Shangri-La of new opinion and new coverage and new discussion. Of course, it didn't work. 
correspondingly in time to that, there are three cases that come up in the D.C. circuit um, that deal with fairness doctrine complaints. Two of them, Meredith and Syracuse, are about advertising, pro-nuclear power advertising that people want to have the ability to respond to. The other case is about teletext and whether or not teletext is subject to fairness doctrine standards because teletext sends a signal in the bottom of the wave and in the gaps between the waves and decoded in television yeah we don't need to go there okay anyway what ends up happening is the fcc begins to argue against the fairness doctrine and they stop enforcing it in the mid 80s in 1987 the syracuse decision comes up and the, the dc circuit court says to the fcc look if you don't like this rule stop enforcing it you have that authority so the fcc stops enforcing it 1987 is when that happens, okay? But the story isn't over there. The Fairness Doctrine is still on the books in sort of this kind of weird, superfluous way. It's not being enforced by the FCC. It hasn't been enforced for almost a decade at that point. But it's still on the books. The next big moment, of course, is in 2000. There's a challenge uh, under the political editorial rule between the Bush campaign and the Gore campaign. And it goes to the D.C. Circuit, and the rule is still on the books, right? You're still supposed to provide this transcript and all these things that the political editorial required. And the D.C. Circuit says to the FCC, okay, we're not really sure that this rule actually exists anymore. We're really not sure if this rule works anymore. So we're going to give you 30 days to defend the rule if you want it to stay on the books. Of course, the FCC just let that slide, and then political, editorial, and personal attack rules died. But that is actually not the end of the story. When Obama is elected president, suddenly the fairness doctrine crawled out of a tomb like a zombie, and people started talking about it again. Now, I had been in broadcast, this is when I was working for Clear Channel, I had been in broadcasting for more than a decade at that point, and I, I just remember being shocked that anyone was still talking about it. Like that even there were people at the station that I worked with who weren't even old enough to remember what the fairness doctrine was. Right. And what happens is, is it sort of becomes a boogeyman. So the final death of the fairness doctrine is not during the Fowler era. It's actually in 2011. Congress actually formally repeals the FCC's authority to enforce the fairness doctrine. And it, it's gone. But that is also not the end of the story. There is one last gasp of air for the Fairness Doctrine. In 2014, Sue Wilson files a Zappel Doctrine complaint. The Zappel Doctrine was a Fairness Doctrine interpretation dealing with competing supporters of but not actually officially spokesperson for political campaigns. It applied in only one case. Sue Wilson tried to make a complaint about Milwaukee radio stations not giving sort of fair shakes to supporters of the um, Democrats that were running a gubernatorial candidate against Scott Walker in the state of Wisconsin. That was Tom Barrett at the time. And she tried to bring a Zappel complaint. She actually cited the Zappel complaint in her filings in the media ownership proceeding um, that happened this week. And that said, the FCC was like, we don't really have any authority to enforce this thing anymore. And they denied that. So it died. It's last gasping breath. Like we, we put the machete through the head of the zombie 
all in 2014. But now it's back again, right? Here we are talking about it again. It's, it yeah, Chris. The wire it can't peop- come back. It's- Why are people calling you and asking you about the fairness doctrine? Who wants to bring it back and in what context? Well, there's people who want to apply a fairness doctrine-like rule to social media postings. That's one thing. But there's a lot of people who object to Which is, it's that's, not, that's let's can we just name it? That's like a Florida governor Republican culture war thing. I'll just say there's that. I'm gonna all, say it. We could we could spend an entire show talking about Section two thirty issues on that. But the other thing is is that a lot of people object to what's on cable news. Right? They think that if somehow magically the FCC were to reinstate the fairness doctrine, Fox News, and even some people who object to MSNBC's content would be forced to sort of, they would sort of be forced to give the other side. That, of course, isn't true even when the fairness doctrine was, was in place because those are cable stations. But that, this sort of concern about misinformation, that really wasn't what the fairness doctrine ever dealt with. The fairness doctrine was designed to stimulate discussion of issues in a local market. That's that was what its intent was. And this idea that it would somehow balance these discussions is just misplaced. I don't know why it comes back every once in a while. Um, the confusion with the equal time rule is not a new thing. That goes way back. But it is back, and people are talking about it again. And it's, I, you know, I, that's part of the reason why I thought it was great that we decided to talk about this today is because I wanted to kind of set the record straight. It's not coming back. Absent an act of Congress giving the FCC the official authority to do something about it, it, it can't come back. And that's well, right. simply not going to happen. And, and it can be, you know, it can be politically useful to have a boogeyman. And the FCC is a wonderful boogeyman. Most federal agencies are great boogeymen because of the fact that they are unelected formally, even if they are appointed, you know, politically. And, you know, seem opaque. They seem vague, as we sort of talked before. And, um, you know, as a result, uh, you know, it, it's, it's easy to sort of uh, yeah. imply upon them or project upon them uh, that they are uh, that they are definitely kind of in the background, ready to pounce and seize control. Yeah. And I would include that it's a very potent myth that uh, things worked better in the past when 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 I before I was born or when I was younger. And the way I understand the fairness doctrine myth is that it was okay it worked until reagan broke it which is a very potent uh very potent way to 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 worry about the political world that that reaganism was kind of the the rubicon that we crossed and and that the media never recovered the 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 fair and balanced media never recovered from from the reagan years is kind of where it comes from well, I mean, that's that's part of the legend of the Fairness Doctrine, right, is that somehow the growth of Rush Limbaugh and other talk formats at the time, uh, you know, at the, at the time you start to see early rounds of consolidation and ownership, you start to see more nationalized content. And frankly, that was, for a lot of people, that was a fairly bleak time in American history. It's easy to point the finger at that time. But the thing that i I love to point out to people now is even if the fairness doctrine worked in the sort of mythical Dungeons and Dragons format that people imagine it in, there's no way you'd want the FCC to be in charge of enforcing it. A, the FCC lacks anything meaningful in the term of resources to be actually able to adjudicate these complaints in any sort of meaningful time. But you want 
you don't, do you really want a government regulator to be making decisions on what speech is allowed and not allowed? I, as a first amendment scholar, I find that right. quite, one, quite difficult to one swallow. One that is controlled by the executive branch. <laughs> well, that, but that's, that's, I mean, you make the exact point, Eric, is that when you're talking about this, that's what you're talking about. But remember, these ideas are not, I mean, they're not just from crackpots on the web. Commissioner Carr has actively been seeking the ability to sort of compel speech in social media for almost a year. The NTIA's petition for the FCC to revisit what Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act does, and we've talked about that on the show before, is that, I mean, he, he actually would like to have that compelled speech. Now, he would never call it the Fairness Doctrine. But what he's asking for, and he's not alone, Ted Cruz has asked for this in Congress. A number of Democrats have asked for it in Congress, right? It's it's not, it's, you know, it's, it, it, there's a sort of this mainstream myth about how we could do this without actually calling it the fairness doctrine. Well, you know, so Chris, I mean, you know, speaking very specifically about radio, I mean, you, you brought up just a moment ago the Rush Limbaugh example, right, which was coincident with, you know, the rise of Rush Limbaugh in the mid-1990s is coincident with the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which lifted uh, any any caps on national radio station ownership, right? You know, and and sort of it's a perfect storm in a sort of a political economic sort of way because it, it, it Rush Limbaugh's programming also was very cheap for these newly founded uh, large radio companies like the former Clear Channel to put on AM radio stations all over the country and also, you know, proved to be to be relatively popular and, and profitable as a result. And in, and in a lot minds, I think of many people who consider themselves to be liberal or left, they think, but if, you know, much of what, you know, sort of the Rush Limbaugh style programming is is a lot of attacks, really, honestly. <laughs> it's a lot of personal attack. You know, so even putting aside just simply espousing a conservative viewpoint, which which would be which is sort of one part of of where the, the fairness doctrine might apply where where it's a little more vague, as you've noted, that that the station that airing a Rush Limbaugh should also make some effort to 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 provide some other views on the air. But it really would be Rush Limbaugh's personal attacks against people, both often who are more uh, who are politic politicians, you know. So you know, a uh, Bill Clinton, who who you know, uh, President Clinton at the time. But he was also well known for going after people who were private citizens, more or less, kind of thrust into into the news because of of often reasons beyond their control. Um, and I think often, you know. Folks feel like, well, at the very least, of a fairness doctrine, especially that personal attack rule, that uh, would 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 have would have provided some curtailment. You know, is that is that correct? Can you pick that apart for me? Sure. There's a little debate on that point, but there's there's a there's an important word in the discussion of Rush Limbaugh that gets lost a lot. It actually gets lost in a lot of FCC discussions, and that's the word local. Remember what the fairness doctrine required was discussion of local public issues, right? And there's an argument to be made that Limbaugh's show doesn't talk about very many local mm. issues, right? That it's a national show. And remember, the Fairness Doctrine was still on the books when Rush Limbaugh was getting started. Um, and for most of the time that Rush Limbaugh was doing the things that he was doing, up to and including the 2000 uh, election, 
the FCC was still in, still had on the books the personal attack and political editorial rules. When I was at WISN in Milwaukee, I started shortly after there was a uh, a personal attack case involving one of our local hosts against a college professor at UW-Milwaukee. His name was Dave Berkman, sort of a controversial figure in Milwaukee. But he, uh, you know, there was actually, I mean, these cases were still being adjudicated, but by the point that Limbaugh was sort of hitting his stride, the FCC wasn't enforcing these rules quite as stringently as it may have done in some imaginary time before that. You used the indecency example before. Remember that there's in, since 1934 till today, there are less than 120 fines issued for indecency by the by the FCC in, in American history. And it's substantially less than 120, but it depends on how you count. Right? So for you, think about all the rigmarole that surrounded indecency. The same enforcement, you know, that you think about back to 2004 and the Super Bowl and Howard Stern and Bubba the Love Sponge and all these other high-profile radio people. Uh, Anthony, Opie and Anthony, right? You know, they, they had their couple of cases that were there. They had the Ron Jeremy case. They had the Jerry Garcia case way back in the 70s, right? All of these cases combined added up to less than 120 cases mm-hmm. of indecency enforcement. Now, indecency, you can't listen to a broadcast radio station and not hear something that would have qualified as indecency at one point or another. I mean, it's right. part and parcel of how we speak. But that doesn't mean it's enforceable. Right. And it doesn't mean the FCC has the resources to enforce it. It's no different on the political speech side. And in fact, touching the political speech rail puts the FCC into a really uncomfortable position where they've got to adjudicate these, as you talk, personal attack disputes. That's just something the FCC really doesn't want to do. But even if it did, the process the FCC has to go through to adjudicate a complaint like this takes a very long time. And even if the FCC ultimately agreed with me, so Lim, to use your Limbaugh example, Limbaugh had some very choice words to say about me at one point. He actually talked about me on air by name. Okay, Congratulations. Uh, yeah, well, it was a few <laughs> years back now. But the point is, is that by the time I if, I, had, if I had taken issue with that and I had tried to get the FCC to do something about it, the rules were gone by then, but just to play it out, it would have been months before I could have possibly won a case. Well, by then, nobody's going to even remember that Limbaugh talked about me. He talked about two-minute segment on one day, right? Was I unhappy about it? I thought it was kind of funny at the time, actually. But that's the point is still the same, right? Even if I had recourse to go after him under the personal attack rule, by the time I would have that, no one would. it wouldn't matter, right? The damage, the damage so much as it is, would be done. Christopher and, Terry, why was Rush Limbaugh peeved at you? I mean, we have to know. Um, in 2014, I gave an interview to the New Republic magazine talking about the Milwaukee talk radio scene. And my, my larger point in the article, or the larger point of the interview, was is that Scott Walker, had, as governor, had very friendly media in town, and that he was very friendly on sort of a personal first name basis with many of the talk radio people here in Milwaukee. And that when he met a more critical media and down the road, that was going to go bad. That was put into the context of a larger article that sort of turned me into persona non grata. And, you know, I've lost my clear channel consulting gig as a result of it, but that, you know, those details, right. That's 
long time ago. Wow, Wisconsin culture war. <laughs> yeah. Trenches. Well, anyway, but the the point is still the same, right? There is no even if we even if the fairness doctrine had ever existed the way people imagine it to. There's no way the FCC could enforce it in a meaningful way. Yeah. I don't necessarily disagree with the idea that balance is a bad thing, right? More viewpoints is something I've spent 25 years advocating for, both as a broadcaster, but also as a scholar. Um, you know, I, I think ownership issues are tied to diversity, and I think that those are really important issues. But that doesn't mean I also think that the FCC should be in a position to be adjudicating these disputes between individuals over things that were said about them and in that in turn compelling a platform, social media platform, for example, to say that. I mean, you can't believe in the First Amendment and agree with that. The greatest legacy of the First Amendment and the greatest legacy of the First Amendment's application to the Fairness Doctrine is the idea that media is supposed to serve the public. What is really compelling about the Red Lion decision is not that it upheld the Fairness Doctrine. That's sort of the historical part of that story. What's really interesting is that the court took this point of view that because broadcasting is such a scarce resource, that there's only so many stations in a spot, there's only so much information that can move past that, that the people that matter in that arrangement are the listeners and the audience. That is the thing that people should take away from Red Lion. Because that is exactly the type of issue that we talk about when we talk about net neutrality. Right? What can citizens have access to? Right? It's very much the same issue for the next generation telecommunications. But beyond that, Red Lion isn't really that interesting of a decision. It's a fairly technical decision. It really doesn't employ uh, very much traditional First Amendment theory. And most importantly, it's basically, although it's never been overturned, it's basically irrelevant because there is no fairness doctrine to come back. And even if it did, it wouldn't do what people assume it did. It'd be neat if it ever had done that. It never would have worked, but it would have been neat anyway. <laughs> you know, right. And and what I what I think always is that, you know, part of it, and you you we I think we've 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 been circling this right is really what what changed in this time period that you know to this imagined past which didn't really exist of, of fairness you know and you know in, in the media and and balance in the media but what changed fundamentally is the, the entire economic structure in a lot of ways it didn't it's not fundamentally overturned but the, you know the consolidation certainly um radically changed both radio and television and you know and now that because in 19 you know say 94 you know, cable and broadcast were mostly separate industries, right? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, but, and now they, of course, are utterly, you know, Comcast, NBC being, being the, the, the strongest example, you know, they are, they are all one and the same, uh, you know, and that fundamentally kind of changes the incentives. It changes how, how everything is produced. It changes how things are distributed, and, you know, it, it, I, I think in some ways that's sort of <laughs> what maybe people are 
often reacting to. And yet that seems like it's, it's not just the horses out of the barn, you know, it's every horse is out of all of the barns everywhere. Well, remember that the fairness doctrine was designed to, um, um, to apply to situations where a local broadcaster did something to a local individual, right? It never, in 1949, they never envisioned the kind of media structure or the media content production structure that we have. And today, I mean, they just, yeah. it, it was, it's beyond scale in what they could have even possibly would have been, it wouldn't even have been science fiction. It would have been science fiction about science fiction. Right. So in that situation, the fairness doctrine makes sense, right? Station covers a public issue. It's important public issue. They give an opinion on it. Right. And then other people in that community might want to have the ability to give another opinion on it. That makes sense. And it can be applied at that level. And again, the station had the authority to decide who got to speak on those things. Mm-hmm. That's that that would have been doable. But this national production structure, these syndicated programs, you know, to say nothing of cable and how its content is produced and distributed, you couldn't take what the fairness doctrine was designed to do, which was cover these local public issues with more than one point of view and apply it on the top of that model. It, it, it it can't work. It wouldn't work, and it was never meant to work that way. It's it's so funny because it's it just appears as, to me, based on today's conversation where I've learned so much that the myth of the fairness doctrine might not exist if they hadn't named it so well. It's like, don't we all wish there really was a fair, meet you know, just fairness? <laughs> like, can't we all just go back and agree that fairness is some is a is a is is a is a quality that we all want to see again in the world. And, and Chris, you pointed out that you know, in some ways, you know, if we're going to use that word fairness, you, you know, and that's something we've talked to you before. Fairness might be more in the direction of uh, more diverse ownership, uh, greater presence of women and and minorities in in the ownership and direction of of mass media, but in the particular case, the FCC of broadcast media, where more or less the sh- that share has been in decline, as, actually, rather as than, well as, than an ascendancy. One might say as, that as well as local that's, control that's a more, might be more powerful as well uh, as kind of fairness, as well as local control, like women and and minority ownership, as well as local ownership of, of broadcast media. Well, it's not local ownership. It's local operation that matters. The idea that you can syndicate programming and ship it off to seven places and have it be the same is different than producing content for each individual station. And it's operation that matters. Ownership and operation are obviously close related. The more stations you have, the more likely you are to centralize your production model. But the reality is, is that if stations are operated locally, which many stations owned by women and minorities, especially Hispanics, are actually operated in the markets in which they are based... That changes the dynamic substantially. Right. Because whether, I mean, certainly uh, going back to Rush Limbaugh, because he's a, he's a sort of a a great uh, foil for this uh, very early in, in his syndication career, he was syndicated to locally owned stations, right. And locally owned clusters, especially, you know, 1994 when he was, you know, an ascendancy in terms of uh, his, his overall cultural influence, 
uh, it wasn't via enormous chains of co-owned stations. It was actually, you know, often mom and pop operations. Yeah. Yes. Mom and pop one and two outstation operations. When I was in broadcasting school in the early nineties, he was on a singly owned uh, commercial station in Oshkosh, Wisconsin for a while. Right. Just one AM out there by itself in the middle of a field somewhere. Cause it was cheap. I'm sure. <laughs> So, Christopher, we have to ask you, like, what, I mean, other than advising public intellectuals and reporters not to use the fairness doctrine as a bygone example of where things went wrong, like, what what other advice do you have for for the the people of letters in this world who who have fairness doctrine on their minds? Uh, Forget that it existed other than as a historical archive of broadcast regulation. It's gone. It's not coming back. And you would do better if you care about misinformation and cable programming to advocate for a la carte cable packaging, which takes away the subsidy, which is given to channels like Fox and MSNBC through your cable subscription rate. If you really want to do something about Fox News, and I've I've advocated this for years, a la carte cable where you pick and choose exactly what stations you get is a far more aggressive regulatory solution than the fairness doctrine ever could have been. And one that's Even, so incredibly multi-partisan, I can't believe it. Like everybody can get behind the idea that I only want to pay for the cable stations I want. It seems very like a very popular like that might be the most popular regulatory proposal i have ever heard (laughs) like right i only want to pay for what i want to pay for that's that's an american dream uh dr christopher terry thank you so much for joining us today on radio survivor always great to be here i love being that uh how much more time shall we Uh, spend together we can keep talking if you want my my next first question is can we go back to 1939 sure like what Tell us that story all over again. What really was the issue? <laughs> Why did they call it the Fairness Doctrine? Who, where did this all come from? Well, it isn't actually called the Fairness Doctrine initially. It's the uh, direction on broadcast editorializing is what it's, uh, what it's called initially. 1939 is actually the Mayflower Doctrine. The Mayflower Doctrine case. So you have to put this in context, as Jennifer would say. There were only two AM stations in the city of Boston. Actually, there were three, excuse me. There were three stations in Boston, all of them AM in 1938. One guy, through kind of a freak set of circumstances, actually owned two of those stations, right? So again, this is AM dial only. There's only a handful of stations. You can get a couple of New York stations during the day, a couple of stations from Kansas City at night. But there's three stations in town, Boston stations. He owns two of them. He like any other rich guy, used his two stations to editorialize on behalf of candidates that he preferred. Sorry about the door slam. That's okay. Can you tell us can you tell us more about this character and also what politics he thought it was, was important to this, use his stations? It's entirely unremarkable. He had a favorite candidate in the mayoral race. He editorialized on behalf of that candidate, suggesting he would be a better mayor than the other guy. The people that come in also, from the Also, I have to ask, this this station owner, did he literally speak into the microphone? No. No. He had the people who worked people. for him. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So he, um, this other group comes in, 
And they want one of these two licenses. And remember, this is a time where stations really had to justify whether or not they could have the license. This is at the same time as the Trinity case, right? The KFKB case, right? These are all, you know, these are real issues for stations. They've got to do this. So you have a comparative license challenge, which in 1939 were not unheard of, but they, they were still relatively rare before the, after World War II, they see and more then of them. I have to ask a dumb question. Why can't they have their own fourth station? There weren't, wasn't enough spectrum in Boston assigned for a fourth station. So they want one of these ones. Because that's AM is so big that the New York stations and the Kansas right. City stations are crowding well, out any Boston Especially choices. in the East Coast, because you're close to New York, where most of the major, you know, the Class A and the Clear Channel, small C, small C. All- allocations would change later on. Yeah. And broadcasting would become, to some extent, much more localized, but that took a different policy regime. Yeah, well, it that and, and that most of that happens after World War II. And also, right, I'm right. glad I'm glad we went down these weeds. This is why I love when podcasts freeze me from the time constraints of the so, clock because it's amazing to think of a time in America where the media went from a uh, wider scope to local, where they yeah. reversed time. They 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 made the the rivers flow upstream for a moment. Well, what happens is, is this group comes in from the outside and they want one of these two licenses. And the, the primary focus of their challenge is, is this guy has these two stations and he's using them to, to the detriment of others by editorializing. Now, the reason they, they don't end up with the license is actually a different story. But their financing fell apart. The two people that were involved with this sort of challenging group were somewhat questionable characters themselves. But the FCC's response to this decision, and they let the guy keep the stations while they were resolving this issue, they come out and say, you know what? You can have the stations, and you're supposed to carry news, but no editorials, right? No editorializing. Just the facts, ma'am. Right, you know, which no is Friday also... And the whole, dude, I whole didn't deal, want to derail right? us at the during the hour, but that distinction... It's because we're still we're still bothering that distinction in America now. Like, how did 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 anyone bring that up? Like, how do I how do you define editorializing compared to the news? Well, that was what led to the blue book. Right. And we would have if World War Two hadn't come into this time frame. Right. This is 1939. Mayflower decisions in 1939. Right. World War Two sort of interrupts this discussion, but it picks up. Very quickly after, at, towards the end of the war and at the end of the war, you know the NA, the National Association of Broadcasters, who are led by a guy named Justin Miller, and you have the FCC under the guidance of James Lawrence Fly, and these two guys don't like each other very much, or at least rhetorically didn't like each other very much, and they were going at it. Miller was accusing the FCC of trying to implement communism on broadcasting at one point, right? You know, and Fly is this really hardcore administrative law technocrat who came over from the new deal business, you know, new deal operations and stuff. So they, they are just at diametrically different points of the spectrum, but the broadcasters say, how do we, you know, how do we split this hair? Right. They, they've been carrying government propaganda for the entire war years, right? Things are starting to get back to normal. People are coming back. They want to get entertainment programming on. They want to get, sports on especially baseball because baseball helps sell radio sets and they want to get um you know news and editorializing on they're like you know how do we split that hair that's where the fcc comes in with the blue book 
right? That's where they say, okay, we're going to tell you exactly what you have to do to meet these, this sort of public service, convenient, public convenience, interest, public interest, convenience and necessity of your license. And what happens is when the FCC tells them what the FCC expects of broadcast licensees, they're even more mad, right? They're even more mad about the blue book than they were about the Mayflower doctrine. There's no room for baseball in the blue book. Right. Well, they were very concerned about the advertising. If you go back and I've read Justin Miller's papers, I've read uh, James Lawrence Fly's papers, both of which are at the Wisconsin Historical Society. And if you read the communications that they were having back and forth and the things that they were saying about each other at the time, they were really, you know, Fly was Fly and the FCC were really trying to come up with a way that broadcasters like sort of a checklist for broadcasters to meet. The problem was, is that checklist said things that the broadcasters absolutely hated. So they just revolted. I mean, they just, they just straight up revolted. They accused the FCC of being sort of this tyranny and didn't we just beat tyranny and all, you know, it was pretty serious rhetoric, some of it. And is this, is this where public interest comes from? No, public interest, convenience and necessity is in the, uh, it's actually the Radio Act of 1927. It comes over from, railroad legislation it's embedded in the uh 1934 communications act but the funny thing about public interest convenience and necessity or public interest convenience or necessity pi can or pi con is that in the communications act they're used interchangeably right whoever edited the text of the communications act wasn't paying very close attention to their prepositions and conjunctions and in some places used or and in some places used and which is of course all part of this larger 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 it problem. sounds it sounds a little bit like um life liberty and the pursuit of happiness like it's it's totally meaningless maybe so after the broadcasters revolt about the blue book the fcc kind of throws its hands up and says fine we'll tell you exactly what you have to do to editorialize right we want you to cover these public issues that's an obligation of your license when the issue is controversial then you have to let more than one person speak on it if they so desire now the fcc did not in 1949, when the Fairness Doctrine is handed down, they did not say, you know, we're going to be looking over your shoulder on this, right? We're not, you know, that we want to adjudicate a ton of complaints from people who didn't get to speak. You're the licensee. We've given you this license, comes with some obligations, but we trust you, right? This is still the trustee era of broadcast regulation. Like, we trust you to make the right decisions here. You know what you have to do, cover these issues. You know what you have to do when you do it. If it's controversial in a, in a way that people want to have a say on, let them have a say. No, but there was no structure into how that was actually supposed to work. And it was left to the licensees to make those determinations. There were, Paul's uh, discussion of the editorializing, which used to happen on the television news, that's exactly what it was, right? We will give an editorial on a point of view. If you've got an, uh, if you object to that, write us in, we'll run your editorial, right? The news director or the station manager or whoever would sit on the news and they'd read the other other side of the editorial or they some in some cases, they'd let you come on the news. A lot of times they would run those things in entirely separate times when they had a little bit, you know, okay, you want five minutes? We'll give you five minutes. Sunday, 5 a.m., yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, well, it usually wasn't quite that obtruse, but, right. you know, but the point being that, it was left to the stations to make these determinations as part of the conditions of their license, right? You are the people in this local community. You've got a pulse on these things. You're doing ascertainment. You're doing these things. More robust discussion. 
And of course, that's exactly what the Supreme Court buys into in Red Lion in 1969 when they look at the Fairness Doctrine. They're like, okay, well, this thing actually promotes speech, right? That it promotes information, and it's the listeners who matter in that arrangement. It's actually a really interesting point of view on government speech regulation because it's the the court interprets it as sort of this positive thing, right? That it, it's actually creating speech rather than restricting it. That's, of course, why the argument in the 1980s is, is that, well, no, it's actually not doing that, is that it's limiting discussions of these public issues because right, broadcasters cool. are deliberately avoiding controversial ones so they don't have to give up this time. And, of course, I don't, you know, probably materially that wasn't probably entirely accurate. At that point, it, I, it doesn't seem as though fairness doctrine worries was suppressing much in the way of speech by then. I, I mean, there's certainly no empirical evidence on that. The study that is cited is is methodologically questionable. But, I mean, it's an interesting argument, right? And remember, when Fowler's FCC says, we don't need the fairness doctrine anymore, the central argument he makes to support that idea is, if we got rid of it, we're going to get more of what the fairness doctrine was supposed to provide us. Now, he wants it gone as a deregulatory mechanism, but he makes an argument that if we just get rid of this thing, we're still going to end up with more of what it was supposed to do. It's the fear of it that still lingers that goes. And I can say, as a FCC scholar, I'm somewhat skeptical of that point of view. But I can tell you, when I worked in broadcasting in the late 90s, even long after the Fairness Doctrine was off the books, people still in the industry talked about the Fairness Doctrine. They were afraid of the Fairness Doctrine. And they didn't fundamentally understand what it meant to have a fairness doctrine. I heard the same thing in community radio, you know, in the 90s. Again, after, you know, it was basically, you know, all but, you know, uh, gone. And with regard to, you know, concerns over over airing, uh, you know, local political programming, which is sort of a cornerstone of a lot of community radio and, and still there being a fair amount of, of trepidation, you know, and usually, you know, as these things are sparked by some particularly egregious incident rather than sort of the ongoing, but then the, 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 the common reaction is to overreact and, and to sort of bring all the uh, station's uh, political programming in, in, into question rather than sort of the worries about somebody's uh, misstep. But I, you know, this reframing, Chris, I think is something we doesn't, uh, always get enough attention, which is the premise, of course, for our conversation, the reframing of the rights of the listener, the rights of the audience in all of this. And, you know, because I think that uh, that's uh, – we're so used to thinking about the rights of the speaker, right, which, which, you know, becomes by default really the rights of the owner, right? You know, and, and it's and, – and, uh, that the trustee model was that we're, we're entrusting these owners to do well by the people they're serving, that there is this relationship uh, that is there. And certainly I think there are broadcasters who, who, you know, in, in some way take that, take that seriously, or at least people within broadcast organizations. I certainly think that community radio and a lot of other sorts of, 
of local media are also premised very formally on that on that relationship. But it's very easy to forget. It's very easy to forget, I think, no matter who the broadcaster is, right? So I don't want to let sort of, uh, you know, the community media that we love so much off the hook either because very often the issues, again, can become overly focused on the rights of a given programmer, DJ, or host over and above what it is, particularly the service uh, that they're there to provide. And and also, the, you know, it, that trustee model, which, you know, for us, you know, in speaking so much to and with community and college broadcasters who are either shaking in their shoes for the FCC to come knocking on their door for, you know, the accidental F-bomb that flew that came across the airwaves at 8 p.m. when it shouldn't have or, you know, for all sorts of other, you know, comparatively minor infractions uh, not kind of realizing that that trust <laughs> the F- the FCC wants you to be there. They want you to broadcast, and they want to trust you to do so. And it's only when that trust is misplaced, in certain regards, you know, broadly speaking, that thing that, that that there are tremendous problems to be had. And that's when when we talk about fines. And it's true that broadcasters do sometimes violate that trust. And I think that that's so much of what this model of regulation is there for, right? Is is ultimately it's we're we're going to trust you, and then at times you you're going to you're going to abuse that trust in a certain way, and that's idealistic. I mean, you know, I'm being idealistic. I'm being sort of probably to some extent, uh, uh, you know, overly optimistic. But uh, that's still somewhere somewhere knit into the system, is it not? Well, it certainly is. And the discussion we almost went on a tangent on in terms of indecency is exactly the the example for this. You've got broadcasters from college radio. You've got broadcasters from community radio. You've got low-power FM people who are very frequently concerned about indecency. Um, and I think the way that Jennifer put it before is, is, you know, it's a question of what can we say, what can't we say? Well, Frankly, right now, the FCC's rules on indecency are so basically unenforceable that the answer is pretty much anything you want. Well, really. right. You know, you know and- that the, the legacy of that enforcement mechanism and the big scary talk about how the FCC is going to come and give you a huge fine for saying and dropping an F-bomb right. or playing a dirty song or you know, making some sort of innuendo about having sex, right? Those are all things that... Did you hear that, the song last summer? The big well, hit well, of the summer? Okay, right. but, but, that, but that's my point, is that it, w- it was a real thing. But like shouting fire in a theater, like the fairness doctrine, it's, it's myth right. is so much bigger than its reality. And I was just through, I could say this on the podcast, I don't want to say this on the air, a community a community radio training uh, where, you know, inevitably in the part of that session of that training, indecency came up and yeah. just everything got doubled over and we tied are, in knots. We are all very excited at Radio Survivor that Paul is going to be doing a radio show on yeah. on a local community radio station and had <laughs> to go through time. the volunteer training like which, a normal, which I was very like happy to do else. and and and, and it was witness to the discussion of uh, what song that eventually doubles over on itself yeah. and you know and and looking at the examples in the guide which were in many cases 25 years old and older and when I was a college radio advisor now um 9 you know 8 9 years ago 
you know, the way I would talk with the students, I said, you know, some, just, just, yes, we want, you know, we need, let, let's, Let's keep the act pretty clean during daylight hours. We had a, an official policy for the so-called safe harbor times, you know, the 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. Yeah. In, in decent uh, uh, material could be aired. But I told them often, you know, you don't really so much have an FCC problem, but you have an Evanston retiree problem. <laughs> Yeah. Right, because there, and 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 I didn't. This was not a made-up circumstance. It, it there would you know this is this is in in you know uh, the the suburb uh, the educated suburb of Chicago, Evanston, Illinois, and so what you would have is you would have community members who would hear something on this college station, and it would upset them. And they may or may not be complaining to the FCC, but they are calling the university right. president's office, right, and leaving. You know, in leaving messages and, you know, certainly there was a strong history of the administration respecting uh, college media and journalists, et cetera. But there's also a point at which you're testing everyone's patience. Right. <laughs> and you're bringing My- scrutiny you may not want to bring. Yeah, you don't want the college president um, getting these calls. You know, the one thing that I tell people at the station where I volunteer is, you know, we've had music added that has things that sound like EAS tones. And I'm like, that is the one thing that yeah, I can no, tell you no, that the FCC no, 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 does they care enforce. about that. No, like, no, like, no, do not no. play that. I love um, it. I love that saying, you know, I love that playing uh, Car- Cardi B's hit song is that's fine. But if well, you, not necessarily. But I know. Yeah. But if you play the the EAS beeps. In a in a tune, well, you're going to get. Well, I mean, there've been so down. many there've been so many yeah. ridiculous cases for, but where for people for good reasons, yeah. right? Oh it, yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the good the good reason, of course, is that that tone actually automatically triggers the system. Yeah, and it could set it <laughs> set it off, which would you know that's a, that's problematic. Yeah, that's my not two good. favorite my two favorite indecency stories are these. I'll be I'll be brief. When I was first. A college instructor. I was still working on my PhD at Madison. I was teaching at UW Whitewater, which is south of Milwaukee, southwest of Milwaukee. And I was driving in, and they have had a really great college radio station at the University of Wisconsin Whitewater for a very long time. I used to listen to it when I was growing up because it was close enough to get it at night. I'm driving in, and it's two o'clock in the afternoon, and I flip it on when I'm close enough to hear it, and there is this hardcore rap music on with just an insane number of horrible profanity in the middle of the afternoon. Now, Whitewater, Wisconsin, not exactly the most liberal of places, right? So I got to campus that day, and I, I, the student station manager was in my section of class that I was teaching that semester, and I said to her, pulled her aside before class, and I said, um, you know how bad that could have been for you? Right. I mean, and this was at the time that the 2006 guidelines were in place where any utterance of the words shit or fuck were automatically indecent. And each single one of them was finable of up to three hundred and twenty five thousand dollars. I counted thirty seven in the span of two songs, all of which would have been actionable at the time. Can I just mention on the that I'm not going to bleep. That's okay. As an editor, I'm not going to believe Christopher saying shit and fuck on the podcast. And the reason why profanity was on our minds six years ago when we started was you had to click a checkbox on iTunes whether or not you were a profanity podcast or a clean podcast. And that checkbox could change the algorithmic results of your audience growth. But that was six years ago. 
So we've been telling I, people ever since, don't swear on our podcast just to make it life easier. I wouldn't have said that during the radio show, yeah. right? No, right. I of course, the podcast. Yes. I just like. I just wanted to Control's confess different. why we've been keeping people from swearing for six years. I just my other favorite, listeners. my other favorite indecency story is when I was still a Clear Channel producer. 2004 Super Bowl happened. In 2004, the FCC approached Viacom, Clear Channel, and MS Communications and said, "Look, we have got to throw the book at you for all of these outstanding indecency fines." Unless you write us a really big check and agree to compliance training for your employees. So most of the 2004 indecency enforcement, which was the biggest year ever. And of course, in 2005, the FCC issues zero fines for indecency the entire year. 2004, the year of the Super Bowl, when Janet Jackson's boo pops out and the whole deal. Most of the money that the FCC collects comes from these three consent decrees that they signed with Clear Channel, MS, and Viacom. Most of these are for Howard Stern, uh, Stern affiliates that have Howard Stern. Some of these are for uh, Bubba the Love Sponge. There's a few others. Opie and Anthony were not real popular with the FCC back then. But as a Clear Channel employee afterwards, I had to take the compliance training. And it was much like what you described, Paul. It was way out of date. It was, it was just absurd. I don't know where they found an attorney to write this thing. And I went to my boss, my supervisor at the station, who was the program director of the station that I worked for. And I, I said to him, I said, none of this is actually true, right? Did, I mean, is this, I, I was asking, honestly, I'm like, is this actually the compliance that you want us to, to subscribe to? Because this is, this is like Carlin's seven dirty words. This is from like 1978, right? And there's a whole new... There's been two new regimes of indecency since this this information. He's like, that's that's so interesting to me that you know the FCC calls for compliance training, but then they clearly don't have any sort of input into it. So there could be these consent decrees where there's compliance training that we have no idea if it's actually. Don't get me started on the compliance payola compliance training we had for payola back then either. (laughs) That that's a whole other story. Oh my gosh. But yeah, so it was really funny because even at the time, and then remember, this is the moment for indecency, right? This is when everybody's afraid of the big bad FCC and Michael Cops and the whole deal. And right, you know, we're, we're terrified of what's going to happen here. And even in that moment, a company the size of Clear Channel couldn't even have asked a regular producer what the rules were for the compliance training, right? People just didn't understand it. But it was this myth, right? Just like the fairness doctrine is today. This sort of underlying myth of what these rules were and what they did and how they worked, it still applied, right? It still it, it still was there. And it's very much what we're seeing right now with the fairness doctrine again, which terrifies me to think that indecency is going to come back up to bat here pretty soon because we we're, we're overdue. You know, you've got... You've got cases where certain content is not being protected by the First Amendment because it's objectionable in lots of cases in the United States. It's actually getting to be quite problematic, uh, up to and including the Supreme Court, right, which now says that student speech anywhere in the United States, if it's online and it's derogatory towards the school, 
can, is actionable by the school right after the Mahananoy decision. So we're we're going through this this sort of twenty year cycle again right now, and I I think that's part of the reason that the fairness doctrine is back. People are looking at these old cases and imagining that these are solutions to this, and of course they're not. But I mean, when we were doing indecency back when it was the biggest thing in the world we were still operating under an idea of what indecency was supposed to be that was fundamentally different from what indecency actually was at right. the time. And, and even if we strip back to sort of the fundamentals on that indecency, it is the same as the fundamentals there with the, with the fairness doctrine, that it's intended to be about sort of the rights of the listeners. And it can get messed up. And, and, and obviously it's, you know, any of these things is ripe for abuse. And, and that's some of the, you know, you don't need to get into them, but the, what's been brought up. And, and the other thing I, you know, used to, you know, tell uh, students and people in community radio about, about say, indecency in particular, because that's the, the more pertinent con- concern for most of them was, it's all about who you're ticking off. You know, and so on the one hand, it's those, you know, the retirees in Evanston. But on the other hand, you know, some of the most prominent filers of FCC complaints are in community radio and college radio are former volunteers, yeah. are former programmers, right? right? Who, who have an axe to grind and are ready to burn the house down. Yep. And that, you know, and, and, there's at least you know one prominent uh, FCC fine for a community radio station in the last uh, 20, 22 years that was basically brought by a, a former programmer, bought by a former volunteer. Eventually, that was dropped. But you know, it's it is That's, really about that. You know, when we think about that localism and local service and serving a local audience, and we really mean it. I want <laughs> it's really ultimately. The people in your audience, and it doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't mean you shouldn't do things that are controversial. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't push the boundaries, boundaries of culture, push open up avenues. But it's to also understand that um, maybe there are ways to do it and ways not to do it. And and there are uh, ways that you can um, you can put yourself in 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 uh, better stead, and certainly if you're going to do if you're going to have a decent content, well, put it on after ten, and you're free and clear at the very least. I was I was the board op at a at a public affairs and news program in Berkeley, uh, and I uh, wasn't that happy. And when my boss, uh, when the host of the show, uh, misunderstood the fairness doctrine and interviewed, he interviewed a candidate. Maybe it was actually. Uh, close to equal time he interviewed a candidate on the air for who was running for office and then said and we'd be happy to have the opposing candidate on the air i went ahead after the show was over and called that opposing candidate to make sure that they knew that the offer had been put out into the world just uh just as a way to sabotage just just because i had an axe I was one of the axe grinding community. Well, that's radio. that's that's a, it's a relatively uh, blunt axe. Um, Christopher, when was the last time someone asked you to talk about the fairness doctrine in a news story? Yesterday. What did they want? They wanted to ask me what the fairness doctrine was and <laughs> did why why people are talking about it. It's pretty much the same thing we talked about. Do today. you think you helped <laughs> them? I mean, were they were they receptive? Did you like talk no. them down? No, so they're going to no. write that story anyway, and the myth. is I don't gonna... think they're going to write the story, but I didn't talk them down either. So, yeah, so, not a, not every not every interview results in a story. 
That's the uh, it's so, well, what many people who who have not dealt with journalists, uh, and it's nothing against journalists, of course, um, don't realize is that not every interview turns into well. Yeah, and well. there's often times where a reporter, because their editor has told them, yes, that's the story, go get it. Right. They can't back off and say, guess what? The entire f- frame of understanding our story was wrong. We need to scrap it. They have to continue. Yeah, in- unless somebody tells them that. Well, uh, Christopher, help. Thank you. Let me say that again. Uh, I'm not editing. I don't know it. if we're going to. You're not going to edit, so you can just let me start again. It's fine. It's all podcast line. Christopher, thanks for uh, helping uh, set us straight. I, I, you know, I learned all this fairness doctrine stuff early in grad school. Uh, that was a long time ago. Uh, so I, the refresher was certainly useful for me. I hope that the uh, that the instruction was useful to to everyone, as useful as it was to us. <laughs> I'd uh, I'd love to only talk about the fairness doctrine in its historical context from now on. Like I, the wow. idea, like just a slow the con- burn, like a slow well, burn just, podcast documentary. Long it's <laughs> oh yeah, it's 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 great. just past its sell by date, right? There's so many. And again, it comes back to this. If if your real concern, and a lot of the people I I seem to interact with on this, are really concerned about Fox News or MSNBC or something similar, right? And why can't we balance that out? Well, if you want those things to be corrected, a la carte cable is the way they get corrected, right? If you take away the subsidy that those stations yeah, automatically if the person get who doesn't want to get Fox. Cable, it isn't paying for Fox, and therefore it doesn't get Fox. And Fox is the most expensive cable station in the package, yeah. Yeah. right, of the basic cable package, right? The, there would be a fundamental change in how those stations have to do have to operate right. tomorrow. They'd have they'd have an incentive to be more fair because they'd want a bigger audience right. to pay for them. They'd right. have to yeah. be more interesting. Well, and they'd be more they would be more reliant on advertisers than a built-in subsidy for yeah. That that's speech. why the advertiser uh, sort of uh, pressure isn't working as much. No. All right. Well, thanks again, Chris. Really yeah, it's always it. great to be. I love seeing you guys. I wish we would be together a little more often. But uh, you know, <laughs> we thanks, Chris. Our, we'll see you guys. Christopher Terry is assistant professor journalism and mass communication at the University of Minnesota. He joins us often on Radio Survivor to talk about media law. And today, we really unwound the myths behind the fairness doctrine. If you'd like to hear a longer version of this episode or re-listen, you can find us online at radiosurvivor.com or subscribe to the podcast, Radio Survivor. Our email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. On behalf of Jennifer Waits and Paul Reismendel, My name is Eric Klein. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.